This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I'm going to talk about seven facts. He's boiled it down to seven facts, folks, all about debt you probably didn't know. So if you were faced with a debt problem, would you know all your legal rights, options, and remedies? A lot of consumers, not obvious just how complex debt can be until facing the uncertainty of how to deal with it. So Blair's going to highlight the importance of seeking qualified support, sharing some facts about debt issues that maybe you don't know all about. We've talked before, Blair, about the uh, the SANS catchphrase, knowing is not owing. So can you start us off with some debt facts that really highlight this for folks and, and maybe they haven't heard before? Oh, certainly. I'm excited for today's um, segment as well, because I'm sure there's more than seven key things, but these are probably the top seven that I see people coming in consistently in consultations where, you know, really happy to educate, and, you know, the more that we can get the word out to others who might not even need to see us for a consultation, but just need to know this in their life, you know, that that's success to me. So one thing that I often get, get asked about is, you know, sometimes it's a family going through a very tough situation, and they think that their personal debts might turn into a family issue if they're not mm. able to pay all their debts off as they had planned, or if they pass away. So essentially the question of can you inherit debt, we get tons of calls on that all the time, and sometimes it's after people have already taken some steps to say, well, I know I'm going to inherit this debt anyway, so you know, I've liquidated this asset or that, was that the right thing to do? And the first thing we're going to say out of the seven today is that relationships alone, family relationships, um, they do not automatically create responsibility for debt. So a family does not inherit a personal liability for paying your debt just because they're related to you. Uh, if you have an unpaid debt when you pass on, your creditor can try to make a claim on your estate. So if there is you know, um, some asset that you had when you passed on, yes, those assets have the right to be sold to pay debts. But if there's no assets in your estate, there's nobody else that can be held responsible for that. Now, the exception to this is if there is a co-signer or a co-borrower uh, joint type of an account, you know, that's where things could have some shared liability. But for the most part, if someone has some debt and they pass on, unless it was a jointly held debt when they were alive, it, there's no way that it suddenly becomes a joint debt when they had passed on. Okay, and that includes spouses too? Yeah, that's a good point to add there, Elaine. So yeah, it a lot of people think if you marry somebody, you marry their debt. And we've talked about this for a number of segments in the past, but it's completely false. You don't marry someone's debt. And it's not the case that if someone had a significant debt, you know, say a husband owes a huge student loan, the government can't suddenly come to the wife and say, well, now you're married. I need you to start paying this student loan. So the debts remain separate, even though you're married. Now, again, there's a, a difference. If you start getting joint debts together, you start borrowing things together. Of course, that's, you know, the obligation of both of you. But strictly speaking, each person's debts are their own debts, even if they're married. Okay. And you mentioned it, you mentioned a, about a joint debt. Uh, I think it's always so important to talk about co-signing because often that's the first thing that folks suggest they do to help somebody in their family mm -hmm. or a close friend. And you are not a fan of that process. 
No, in uh, my book I wrote a few years ago, uh, there's a big page that says, when is it wise to co-sign a debt? Almost never. I've heard very few situations where it is wise. You know, maybe okay, it's a small student loan for the last semester of school. You know you've got the job already lined up. You'll be able to pay it back and you need your parents to co-sign. That was my example, and it worked out. But uh, for the most part, uh, when you co-sign a debt, most people don't think about the eventuality. If that original borrower can't pay it off, they're going to be on the hook for 100% of that debt. Um, you know, most people think if you're co-signing a debt, at most it's 50-50 liability or, you know, first they have to go and really chase that person down and make sure they can't get anything. No, if there's a default in that agreement, um, they can come to all of the borrowers for full payment. It's called joint and several liability. And there could be credit rating impacts on that as well if the account's not getting paid on, on as according to plan and you're just the co-signer. It could be reporting on your credit as well. The payments aren't getting made. So I've seen situations where people have so regretted co-signing a debt because then when they need to deal with their debt situation, they're leaving the co-signer in a very tough financial situation. So I generally recommend against getting a co-signer for any debts or being a co-signer. I also recommend the exercise caution if you're getting a supplementary card on a credit card account. Really look at the cardholder agreement and make sure you're not signing on to be responsible for any previous balances or any purchases that you don't make. In some cases, you are signing on for both of those responsibilities. I want to throw in here, too, that if you already know that you need to take some action and you need to get some help uh, with to, to solve your debt issue, give Sands & Associates a call. The phone number, again, is 1-800-661-3030 or check the website sands-trustee.com. So, Blair, um, are there some further debt facts about what you can or what can and can't happen if you don't pay a debt that you want to include? Oh, for sure. There's a few here, Elaine. And the first one is one that can really, really impact someone in a serious way if they're not anticipating this. It's called the right of offset. And what this is in simple terms, it's the right of a bank or another financial institution to recover money owed to them for an outstanding debt. So to basically get their debt paid back by taking money you have on deposit with them or an affiliated bank to pay the debt. So what it typically means is that if you've got a credit card at, you know, pick a bank and you also have your daily banking relationship there, it might be the day after you've deposited your paycheck and you're expecting to pay the rent the following day, your account's been swept clean because you've got a delinquent account balance and the bank just got tired of saying, hey, you're late on this payment, so on and so forth. We're within our rights to go into your account and basically clean it out uh, if that's enough to satisfy the debt. So it can happen at the worst possible time, uh, and your bank could withdraw all the money in the account and leave you literally with nothing, and then your next payments, you know, your NSFs or your uh, regularly preauthorized payments, they might not be able to be funded, and then you're dealing with NSF charges, like for $50 a time. You can imagine insult to injury at that point. So the way that you deal with the right of offset is to not put yourself in that situation. So many banks, as you'll notice if you look at their marketing, everything under one umbrella, you know, we can do everything under the sun, and that gives them the ability, if you're borrowing from them, to come and take your assets without having to do anything. They can literally push a button within the bank, and that's about it. If you separate your borrowing and your daily banking, so wherever you put your paycheck in, you just don't have any credit relationship with them, you've frustrated that right of offset forever. That bank that you owe debt from, they could never go to another institution and suddenly take your money. They would have to do a whole legal process. It would take months. You'd see it coming a mile away. So it's the best practice for everybody just to not borrow where you do your daily banking. Such a such a good piece of advice. Um, what about the time that a creditor has to collect their debt? Does that ever expire or does it just keep going on and on and on? 
Well, that's a big one too, Elaine, that a lot of people don't realize there is a time limit. There is a statute of limitations, so to speak. It's called the BC Limitation Act, and it limits the amount of time creditors have to take action to force you, which means to sue you for a debt that's open. And in BC, it's as little as two years. So it changed a number of years ago. It used to be six years. If you owe somebody money, they can threaten to sue you, you know, for six years. It changed a number of years ago. It's now two years. And the way that it's measured is two years after the date the debt was incurred, the date the last payment against it was made, or the date the last written acknowledgement of the debt by the person who owes the money, including an email, was made. So if two years have passed and you have not made a payment on the debt, you've not acknowledged the debt in writing, and nobody has taken legal action against you, um, this debt can become uncollectible. And what that means is that you could never legally be forced to pay this debt. If they tried to take you to court, your defense would be one sentence and it would be irrefutable. You'd say, BC Limitations Act, it's beyond two years, therefore they've got no right to do this, and you would win. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't owe the money anymore. So just because the limitation period has elapsed, it means they don't have the legal right to force you to pay the debt, but they can do other things to you. They can still call you. They can still harass you. They can still threaten you as much as the threats might be empty. They still might be made, and that can cause you some stress. Um, So the debt doesn't go away, but realistically, your risk towards the debt is significantly lower once the two-year limitation period has passed. So well, a couple things. You've got to be careful about making small payments because, you know, if you're 1.9 years into that limitation period and you make, you know, a $10 payment on that debt, you know, a good faith payment or whatever, you've now reset that clock back to zero and the two years starts again. And the second point here is to realize not all debts have limitation periods. Any amounts owing to the government, there's no limitation period for income tax or student loans or anything like that. So it is, and, you know, things like alimony or maintenance, no limitations on those, but your typical consumer debts, there is a standard two-year limitation period. Okay, that's really important, especially that whole if you've had any correspondence with the with the uh, with the with the uh, person who's who who you're owing. I think that's fascinating. Well, yeah, sometimes your best bet is just to go silent. You know, if you know you can't pay the debt, it's not going to help you to pay $10 a month. You're never going to hit the limitations period. And sometimes saying nothing means that you're not going to incriminate yourself. or not going to reset that that clock. So sometimes that can be a good action. And we'll give you advice on that if that's your best course. Now, you've got a nice segment here about Canada Revenue, uh, their agency debt collection. Uh, How does that work? Because I bet that's a little bit different than others. Yeah, the key takeaway there that people might not be aware of is, you know, some people are aware, hey, you've got to be sued for a debt before, you know, you can really have an impact against you, before your wages can be seized, before any assets can be taken from you, there needs to be a court action against you. You know, sometimes when people are made aware of that, they're like, okay, so when people are threatening, they can do something overnight, it just can't happen. The exception to that is Canada Revenue Agency. Because they are the government, uh, they don't have to go to court. They don't have to get an order. If you're delinquent on taxes, if you've been non-compliant, um, they can implement some pretty severe remedies just about overnight. Now, typically, it's not their first step. They're going to try to work with you, call you, you know, try to get you on board, or try to get you to work with a trustee to restructure the debt. Um, but if none of that works, they can do a wage or a bank account seizure very quickly. They can even place a lien on your personal property, start to seize assets from you. So with CRA, just be aware they can shortcut uh, other collection uh, avenues that other collectors would have to follow. And of course, at the end of the day, if you if you don't want to go or pay attention to all to any of those things that we've already talked about, and you just want to deal with your debt, and that that's when I come and see you, and and you've got some options for me. 
Well, exactly. So the best option that I always say people have never heard about, and hopefully more and more people are hearing about it, is the consumer proposal. So it allows you to consolidate your debts without borrowing, but also get those debts forgiven down to what you can actually afford. So quite often it's in the range of 30 to 50 cents in the dollar, maybe at 25, 35, depending on the situation. But it can literally be somebody who owes $30,000 of debt with massive minimum payments, interest accumulating every month. It could be we reduce that down to, say, $9,000 of debt, you know, just under a third of the total, and they pay nothing extra on top of that. It's a payment they can afford based on their income, and they've avoided the bankruptcy proceeding, avoided getting caught in minimum payment traps for the next, you know, 15 or 20 years. So a consumer proposal is incredibly powerful. It's something everyone needs to be aware of if you find yourself in a situation where you're just trapped making minimum payments and you know it's going to take you a very long time to pay off the debt. I also, uh, if, if you're being hounded by uh, creditors and collection agencies, a consumer rep- proposal uh, would shut all of that down as well. Yep, dead in its tracks. As soon as you've signed, the trustee is appointed like a referee. You only deal with the trustee. You get protection from all of your creditors. That should be the number one reason that you would give Sands & Associates a call. As well, you can learn more about consumer proposals, debt consolidation, personal bankruptcy. Uh, you can explore all the different options if now is the time to take some action uh, to, to look after your debt situation. You can get your debt consultation with Sands & Associates easily. Appointments are available in person or remotely. Visit their website, uh, sands-trustee.com and give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents here on CKNW. We're going to talk about smart credit card use. Blair, the do's and the don'ts, easy, easy do's and don'ts to help you use your credit card, possibly better than you already are. So there's no doubt that credit cards are pretty common, pretty convenient, but a few missteps can easily turn a basic balance into a major financial burden. So debt help expert Blair Manton's going to share his credit card use best practices and easy tips to help keep your balance from becoming a debt problem. So I know, Blair, in your work, you've seen far more credit card bills than the average person. Where do you want to start today talking about credit card do's and don'ts? Well, you're completely right, Elaine, in that I can't think of maybe more than five estates in the thousands that I've seen where there hasn't been at least some credit card usage. You know, sometimes it's not the dominant factor, but, you know, it is the fact that credit cards are, you know, a basic component of most people's financial life, whether it's for convenience, whether it's, you know, to get some rewards. Uh, a lot of people do find themselves, you know, using credit cards quite a bit. And there's really nothing inherently wrong with using a credit card. In some situations, they're useful, they're convenient. As I said, sometimes there's some good rewards and perks that you know might seem more attractive than they actually are, and we're going to get to those. Um, but you really need to understand how credit works and what the rules are. And you know, when it comes to financial literacy, it's a skill like any other. It's something that you need to learn. You don't automatically just know everything, and you need some practice, sometimes making some mistakes along the way, some good sources of knowledge to really get you to the point where you are a savvy and well-informed consumer. And you know, that's what we're really hoping to do today. So I thought, you know, off the top, I wanted to set the stage a little bit in terms of the types of credit cards that most people tend to, to gravitate towards, and then we can talk about some good do's and don'ts. 
So in terms of the major types of, of credit cards, you know, the typical credit card that you'll see most often, uh, it's called an unsecured credit card. Most of the time it's just called a typical credit card. And you always want to check the, the terms and conditions before you're taking out a new credit card. Understand are there fees, annual or otherwise? Uh, what are their transaction fees, ATM fees? Are there rewards and bonuses? And then probably the biggest cost that you're going to pay, unless you're paying the card off every month, which is a best practice, but anyway, uh, is what is the interest rate. So a typical credit card, you really want to understand all of those factors. Now, there's a couple other types of credit cards, again, just kind of setting the stage of what we're talking about here. Um, a prepaid credit card, it's sometimes called a reloadable or a pay-as-you-go card, and that's where you put you know, a deposit on the card, and you can basically use it until that balance goes away. You can get a prepaid card with no credit score or a low credit score, and it doesn't do anything to help your credit history, but it is good for convenience. And the final type of the three, so there's the standard credit card, there's a prepaid card, and then there's a type of card which is not really as well known, but it's called the secured credit card. And that's similar to a standard credit card. You know, it works everywhere, um, but you put an initial deposit down, similar to a prepaid card, but in this case, it actually does report on your credit bureau. It's going to help you rebuild your credit. So a lot of the time, a secured card is a great choice for people over a prepaid card. Okay. Now, you kind of let it slip earlier that you think it's the, the best idea is to always pay off your credit card at the end of every month. So I know that you've got a whole list of really good do's, and I bet that that's one of them. And then, of course, the dreaded don't do this with your credit card. Well, and that's the number one rule, Elaine, you can call it the golden rule of using a credit card, is make sure you've got the cash to pay it off at the end of the month. Um, you know, there sometimes might be a good reason why even if you have the cash, you'll use the card, whether it's for convenience, maybe it's for safety, maybe there's some recurring purchases or online purchases. But the key thing to avoid this pylon of interest, which you'd be amazed how quickly your credit card balance can grow at 20 or even 30% interest, um, you just need to make sure you've got the money aside. So the best practice for a credit card is to make sure you're paying the balance in full uh, on a monthly basis. And if you do that, you're not going to be paying any interest charges. Um, and most credit cards typically have either a very low or a zero annual fee. Um, so if you really take the time ahead of time to make sure if you're using your credit card for a purchase that you do have the cash to pay it off, um, you know, that's far and away the number one do with a credit card. But even something to consider is if you do have the cash, sometimes there's a behavioral or psychological aspect of if you're actually parting with the cash, you might be a little bit more careful with your spending because there's a physical pain of opening up your wallet, of taking out the different colored bills. Oh my gosh, the brown bill is $100. My gosh, that's different than putting down, you know, a credit card where everything's a little bit, you know, nebulous. It's less tied to something tactile and physical. So it's not the case you use credit for everything always. Sometimes using cash makes good sense. But if you are going to use credit, make sure you've got the money to pay it off far and away. That's the number one tip. Number one tip. So I just want to throw this in at this point, Blair, that if, if there's a listener that already knows deep down inside that it's time to get some help with finances or your debt problem, I want to just reinforce, give Sands and Associates a call. Uh, the phone number 1-800-661-3030. You can set up that first appointment and get started. So, can we talk about the do's and don'ts you can offer for dealing with a credit card balance? 
Yeah, I think just before we get, we get to there, Elaine, I just wanted to touch a little bit on another don't here because I think this is a little bit of a, of a pitfall. Um, and sometimes people are thinking, you know, I'm going to use my credit card for all sorts of transactions, but there's three in particular that cause you to really incur charges really upfront. So be careful if you're taking any cash advances or credit card checks. Oftentimes there's a, a fee right off the top of those. Uh, be careful if you're doing a wire transfer or a money order. And then finally, and I would hope people aren't doing this, but if you're putting lottery tickets or other gaming transactions on your credit card, be aware they're charged interest right away. So those types of transactions really want to flag for folks to, to be careful with those. Oh, oh boy, I didn't realize that that comes up right away. There's no, there's no grace period like there is with other purchases with your credit card. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly the point, Elaine. So if we go out and wow. you know, go to Hudson's Bay after work and buy you know, a new blanket for the bed or something, I've got 21 days at least of interest-free grace period. I'm going to pay it off. It's fine. I've paid no interest. But if I go out and go to the ATM before then and get the exact same amount of money to take to Hudson's Bay, but I took it from my credit card, I'm going to be charged the probably minimum 20% interest on that from the day that I've took it out. There's no interest-free period. And I'm probably going to end up paying that interest for a couple months because by the time I get the bill, it's only going to have some interest on it. There's going to be some accumulating to the following month. So it gets you into a cycle you don't want to be in. And I know we just sort of glossed over, didn't even touch yet on the benefits part that credit card companies can offer. Do we pay attention to that reward system or the benefits or should we just discount that altogether? Well, I think you want to be careful and understand that it's an enticement to get your business, but I've done the math, and in general, the best rewards programs, they're going to give you about 1% of what you spend back, whether it's cash back or airline points or something like that. Maybe you get it up to one and a quarter or one and a half percent, but if you're spending money to get the rewards points and you're not paying off the balance, your interest charges alone for one month are probably one and a half percent easy. If you carry it for two or three months, you very quickly eclipse any of the benefits you're going to get from that credit card. So I find the rewards... You want to be very careful about them. Again, there can be a good strategy. Charge things on the card, pay it off every month, get the rewards points. But quite often, I find people build up a balance. They've got these rewards points, but then they've got an interest charge that well exceeds any value they might have gotten. That's fair enough. That's a really good point. Okay, so now let's talk about the credit card balance. What are some do's yeah. and don'ts around, around that? Well, I think the first one is just to be aware and be and be proactive. You know, just keep your eyes open and keep track of your account balances, your purchases, and your payments. And you've got to treat all your accounts as important. So don't skip any payments. Don't regularly rotate. I'm going to skip this one this month and pay it the next month. Uh, you need to understand any missed payments at all can impact your credit score, no matter how big or how small. Um, and sometimes you missing payments can actually trigger penalties, can trigger higher interest rates. So really make sure you're keeping on top of things and talk to your lender right away if you think you're not going to be able to make a payment as required. You know, we've seen in the last, you know, 19, 20 months, lenders have been very flexible as people have went through very tough times with the pandemic. Um, can't say that's always going to be the case, but it's definitely worthwhile to be proactive if you know you can't make a payment as scheduled. Now, I know the next thing we want to talk about are the fees or the fee structures. And boy, I find it, that's part of that 18 pages of information you get when you get your credit card, isn't it? Well, and it's, it's so interesting, Elaine, too, because I've often said, you know, the harder something is pushed on you by the salesperson, it's often the better it is for you and the worse it is for them. And the number one thing I tell people to watch out for on fees is balance protection insurance. I've never had a single client, and I deal with people where they've lost their job, they've gotten sick or something like that, where that insurance has actually paid out and done good, and they've gotten some value from it. I've had a ton of clients who, when I look at their bill, I'm like, do you realize you're paying 40 50 80 $100 some month for this balance protection insurance that probably won't pay out? 
uh, and they just had no idea. It was just sold to them as a very good idea, a good way to protect yourself. So be very careful on balance protection insurance. My advice is almost always to say no to it. Um, be aware you'll be charged a fee if you take a cash advance on your card. Sometimes it's nominal, sometimes it's ATM fees plus a certain amount. Uh, be aware there could be over-limit fees. You know, if you're if your credit grantor thinks you know they're doing you a favor by allowing you to exceed your limit, they might also tack a forty or fifty dollar charge on it because you did exceed your limit. Um, and then finally, make sure if you're using your card out of country, you realize there's currency conversion, but there's often charge an extra premium on top of that that can make it a little bit of a worse deal sometimes than going and exchanging your money. So be very aware of the fees. Oftentimes, the amount the credit card companies make from fees is very close or can exceed the amount they make from interest charges. And what do you tell the person who says, look, I pay that minimum payment box every time I get my credit card statement. I can't figure out why I can't get ahead on this thing, like I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. I say you're at the number one warning sign of someone who's going to have financial problems is if you're only able to make your minimum payments, you're trapped in a cycle of debt that could be, you know, even for $5,000 at 18%, that's almost 20 years to pay it off. And, you know, the balances can go up from there. So I'd say to that person, look at your credit card statement. It's not, it might not be as easy as you'd like to find it. But by law, there is a disclosure there that says if you only make the minimum payments, it's going to take you X number of years to get out of debt. Um, and if you really want to educate yourself, if you look back at your cardholder agreement and look at how that minimum payment is calculated, I remember when I looked at it for my card and I was like, no, I must be reading this wrong. It's I'm going to pay the interest for the month, uh, any charges or fees for the month, and $10, literally $10. It didn't matter what my balance was. I was paying interest fees and $10 each month was going to bring down my balance if all I was doing was the minimum payment. So that's why it's the 20 or 40 or 100 year cycle is minimum payments contribute very, very little to actually reduce reducing your balance. In my mind, they're designed to preserve as long as possible the amount of time you will be making those payments. Got it. So we just got a minute left, um, Blair, and I think this is so important why a licensed insolvency trustee like yourself, number one person to go see if you've got credit card debt issues. Well, that's absolutely right, Elaine. And a lot of folks I deal with, you know, they're determined they're going to get out of this under their own steam. They feel personal responsibility or they feel embarrassed to reach out for help. You know, the best thing I can say is everybody I meet with feel happy that they've at least had the conversation. They're allowed to get some questions answered. They're allowed to put some, you know, structure to something that seems a little bit out there. They don't know all the rules and responsibilities. It's a confidential one-on-one consultation. You can make some informed decisions. And we guarantee it's without judgment. It's with empathy. We're just real people trying to help real people in tough situations. Yeah, and you're not alone in this because this is this is an issue for folks, especially uh, during tough times or, or this crazy pandemic that we're all living through. So if you're ready to get a debt-free plan in place, book your free confidential debt consultation with a caring, and I mean it, caring Sands & Associates debt help expert. Visit sands-trustee.com or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. This segment's all about getting into financial trouble, but not for the first time, but maybe for the second time. And are there debt options for folks who have actually filed for bankruptcy before? Realizing that you have a debt problem can be pretty frightening, and if you found yourself facing challenges with debt before, 
I can't imagine. It must feel so incredibly overwhelming. So Blair is going to share some information and insights on dealing with debt if you've already been through bankruptcy before. And Blair, I'm thinking as a licensed insolvency trustee, would you say it's common? How common is it uh, for you to work with people who have already filed for bankruptcy once before and then have to do it again? Well, it's definitely more common than I would have anticipated when I got into the profession because I think, well, I think a lot of people think first, well, bankruptcy is for life, so how could you ever do it twice? Well, no, it's not. You're able to exit bankruptcy, you know, after as little as nine months for most people. But then oftentimes people think, okay, bankruptcy is a one-time only situation. Why would somebody ever need to do it twice? But we're going to talk about, you know, how circumstances and life can intervene. And it's also a pretty long life most of us have. So I deal with some clients, you know, maybe it was 1980 when interest rates spiked at 23% and, you know, they were forced out of their home and had to sell at a loss. And, you know, now we're 2022 or 2021 here. Um, and, you know, they're retired, they've got some debt, and now there needs to be a second insolvency. So it might be, you know, completely different uh, generational lifestyles, um, completely unrelated circumstances. But it is the fact an increasing number of people who filed a single bankruptcy before are now filing a second bankruptcy. So when I became a trustee in about 2008, the statistic we were told was about 15% of people that go bankrupt once uh, will have to file again at some point in, in their life. Uh, it's updated now to 2019, and it's 22% of consumers who have filed a bankruptcy uh, or made a consumer proposal had previously done one of those remedies before. So again, it is more of an increase um, than in the past. And what we've found out in terms of the reasons why people file for insolvency, it's, you know, in general, it's factors that are outside of someone's control. So it's often an illness, an injury, or maybe a health problem. It could be a marital or a relationship breakdown, or it could be job-related or a job loss. And, you know, those things can happen at any point in life, and they could happen 20, 30, 40 years apart, and they could really cause someone to have to resort to an insolvency filing. Um, but the good news is there is the opportunity to do so. If you've done bank bankruptcy just once before, you could file a second bankruptcy if that's what's required to get you back on track. It's, it's pretty surprising um, to me, but it's also not a surprise, right, that there's folks that end up in that situation again. And the one thing I love about this segment is we're going to talk about uh, ways, uh, there's a couple of different rules or different things that apply to somebody going through the second time, but also there's some other options for them as well. Well, that's right. And a lot of the time, people who might have done a first bankruptcy 20 or 30 or more years ago, a consumer proposal didn't exist as an option back then. So, you know, it might have been a relatively small amount of debt. You know, for sure, they could have paid off a third of it or so, but that just wasn't an option. It was a bankruptcy or it was negotiate with your lender and your lender wouldn't negotiate. So here's what you had to do. So now an increasing number of people that have filed a bankruptcy, they're looking more towards a consumer proposal. We're going to explain a little bit later why that can be a benefit. But, you know, it's not a foregone conclusion that just because you went bankrupt once before. You, you have to do that again. No, you could do a proposal. It's not even a requirement that you use the same trustee as you used the first time. You can choose the trustee that you feel you connect best with, that's taking the time to help you understand everything, and that you know, it doesn't make you feel judged for having to use the system perhaps a second time. Right. The, the thing that I like about this segment, too, is that you outline uh, really nicely sort of the, the reasons why you're, the clients that have come to you that uh, despite an almost daily worry, worrying every day about their debt, they waited to seek professional help. And I think a lot of people fall into these categories before they pick up the phone. And, and I love that you included uh, these reasons why folks sort of waited a bit before they contacted you or contact to get some help. 
Yeah, and the, the big number one reason, Elena, it's very consistent, is shame. People just feel ashamed. They can't handle the debt. Um, they feel worried they're going to be judged. They feel embarrassed about, you know, let alone having to do this twice. Um, they just feel very embarrassed about it. And sometimes they think there's no solution. Sometimes people do think, well, bankruptcy is your one chance in life. You get out of jail free card, and that's all. You use it. You can't do anything else. Um, and sometimes people just don't know where to seek help. They, they recall, I think I saw a trustee before, but it's so long ago, I'm just not sure. But when we think about what they're actually experiencing, you know, the warning signs that people tell us about, you know, it's overwhelming stress, it's constantly thinking about the debt, sometimes it's feeling trapped in a minimum payment cycle, um, sometimes it's threats of collection or court action or wage account seizures. So uh, people that are reaching out to us to file a second insolvency, um, they're generally experiencing some pretty tough points in their life. They're feeling very stressed about their money. Um, and when they reach out to us, they can finally see there is a plan to get them out of debt. I want to mention here, too, that if it's pretty clear to you that you need to do something based on what you've heard so far, Blair, going through uh, the different scenarios that folks find themselves in, give Sands & Associates a call. It's 1-800-661-3030 or visit their website, sands-trustee.com. Um, so is this, we've got about four minutes left in this segment. Do you want to talk about how a second bankruptcy kind of works in general yeah, terms clear. and how different it is from the first one? Yeah, I think that's great for us to pivot to there, Elaine, because there are some differences between filing a bankruptcy a second time and a first time. And first off, you know, bankruptcy in general, it's quite private. You know, it's only the people that you owe money to are generally made aware of it. It's pretty straightforward. Your trustee is going to set out very clearly what you have to do. And in most cases, people do keep all of their assets. Now, bankruptcy is a legal process where you get forgiveness for virtually all types of debts, including credit card debts, overdrafts, tax debt, ICBC, payday loans, student loans, personal loans, just about any debt that's honestly incurred, it can be forgiven as part of a bankruptcy. And it seems a bit counterintuitive. But bankruptcy allows you to protect some of your assets and your income that might otherwise be vulnerable to seizure from your creditors. So if you've got debts that you can't pay and people are threatening to seize your wages, you filing for bankruptcy gets you that protection that you need. Now, the big difference is if you're filing a second bankruptcy is, first off, it's going to take you a longer period of time before you can exit the bankruptcy. So if someone's never been bankrupt before and they're considered low income, they can start and finish a bankruptcy in nine months from the first day to the, to the last day. So it's a relatively quick process. If someone's been bankrupt before, that nine months is now a minimum of 24 months. So it's a pretty significant difference. It takes it to a minimum of two years that someone's in bankruptcy. And bankruptcy has two scenarios. So if you're a first-time bankrupt and you're low income, it's a nine-month process. But if you're not low income, it's a year longer than that. It's about 21 months. Filing a second bankruptcy, I hope I'm not throwing too many numbers out here, but again, if it's low income, it runs for a two years or 24-month period. If you're not low income, it runs for 36 months. So in general, a second bankruptcy is going to take you about 15 months longer uh, than a first bankruptcy would take, all other things being equal. And of course, we teased early on in this segment that the consumer proposal is something that somebody who's experienced bankruptcy already, uh, it might be a good option for them. And I think the number one reason, Elaine, why people are gravitating more towards consumer proposals is that there's a big difference in a credit rating impact from a second-time bankruptcy to a first one, and especially compared to a consumer proposal. So for someone who's filing bankruptcy for the first time, it's going to be on their credit for six years after it's complete. So six years, we can see there's your light at the end of the tunnel, it disappears. A second bankruptcy is 14 years from the time it's complete. So in my mind, that's rather punitive. That's a long period of time, and a lot of folks are rather discouraged. Oh my gosh, 
a second bankruptcy, it's going to be on there for 14 years. If you do a consumer proposal instead, a consumer proposal is going to be there for a maximum of six years, and it could even be shorter than that if you're able to pay the proposal off sooner than the anticipated term. So a consumer proposal instead of a bankruptcy, it's where you make a repayment arrangement. You say, I can't afford to pay you everything that I'm owing. I definitely can't afford to pay interest. So oftentimes people offer in the range of 30 to 50 percent, 30 to 50 cents on the dollar. They make some payments over a period of up to five years and they avoid a bankruptcy. So a lot of folks I see who come in thinking they've got to file a second bankruptcy. We look at all the facts, give them uh, you know all the information to make a decision. And many times people are opting to file a consumer proposal instead of a second bankruptcy. And I like how you've included the idea that it, that it really gives you some breathing room from your debts and protection from your creditors going through a consumer proposal. And that's what a lot of people find just to be life-changing is they don't have to take these collection calls who get these aggressive letters in the mail, the threat, they don't know whether they're real or not. As soon as a trustee is appointed, whether it's a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy, you deal with the trustee, the trustee deals with the creditors, and you've got the breathing room that you need. Excellent. So listen, if you need some advice about dealing with your debt and you're ready for a plan to be debt free, how does that sound? Sands and Associates, Sands and Associates are here for you. You can book your free confidential non-judgmental debt consultation. This is the phone number. It's 1-800-661-3030 or visit the website sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Talking about borrowing as a debt solution. Uh, lots of things to consider. Debt consolidation loans, pretty popular solution uh, that a lot of people think about when they want a solution to streamline multiple debts. So there's some benefits and help resolve some of the aspects of the common debt management challenges, but they aren't ideal in every situation. And that's why this segment's a good one. So Blair is going to take us through some key consideration when it comes to borrowing and non-borrowing solutions if consolidating your debt is something you want to do. So Blair, can you start by kind of outlining some of the basic points of that lender-based debt consolidation option that folks are sometimes looking at? Well, sure, Elaine. You know, when most people say debt consolidation, they're really referring to a debt consolidation loan, which is a pretty basic concept. You're going to borrow a lump sum amount from one lender, and you're going to pay off or deal with multiple other debts. So the idea, the benefits in mind of this is you're going to have fewer payments to juggle. So things are going to be a little bit more simple and easy to keep track of things. Ideally, you're going to free up some cash flow because the whole point of consolidating is that the new lender should be able to give you a lower interest rate than what you're already paying or else you know, there wouldn't be much point in consolidating. Um, and then you'll also should have a timeline on when your debt will be paid off. Now, there's a number of different ways that you can consolidate the debt if you're going to be borrowing to do so. The typical ones, you know, your typical debt consolidation loan is where I've just described you approach the bank, you say, I owe these five credit cards, I'd like to borrow from you, let's pay off the credit cards and I will pay you back. That's a very traditional type of consolidation loan. Um, a home equity loan is becoming more and more common as real estate values continue to increase, and that can be sometimes called a second mortgage or refinancing your mortgage. And with that, you're just borrowing more money against your house house, um, ideally paying a much lower interest rate and paying off some high interest debt. Um, sometimes consolidation can take the form of a line of credit uh, or an overdraft. Um, so again, just another way of borrowing a different mechanism. Uh, and then finally, sometimes with credit cards, you can consolidate using a balance transfer. Um, often this is your more expensive or most expensive option because there's usually transaction fees and interest costs that are typically higher than other options. But as you can see, there's a number of different ways you can try to borrow to consolidate your debts. 
Okay, so all of that sounds pretty good, but I know from talking to you about this before, there are some pretty common challenges that folks run into with consolidation loans or financing. So what are the things that people should consider before committing to that consolidation loan? Right. You know, the first thing is just about everyone that I've ever met with when I ask, okay, what have you tried so far? Well, I tried to consolidate. Okay. And banks said no, right? Yeah, unfortunately. Even with perfect credit, banks said no, right? Yeah, unfortunately. And the challenge is the consolidations are very difficult to qualify, and especially at a rate that's going to make them compelling. If you think about it intuitively, it kind of makes sense. You're approaching the bank saying you're in a risky financial situation, and you want the bank to risk, the new bank to risk their money to pay off all of your old debt, you know, what's their assurance that you're going to be able to pay off the new bank and they're going to get all of their money back they've just paid out. So what some lenders will do is if they will advance some money to you, it could be at very high interest rates. Uh, You've got to be careful too if you're looking online and not one of the major banks. Sometimes what you think you're applying for is a consolidation loan. It's actually just a lead generation site. They're going to be selling your information to a number of folks um, and then, you know, you may or may not be able to be approved, but it's typically not going to be at a very good rate. So I would generally recommend, you know, start with the big banks and, you know, if you've got solid credit and some assets to pledge and you're comfortable doing so, you might be approved. But the vast majority of people that I see, they start with their bank and they're rather shocked that even with great credit, they're not able to get approved to do a consolidation loan. What happens to folks who who do out of the few that actually get a, a consolidation loan? What kinds of, I don't know, assurances do they have to have to give the, the bank? Well, and that can be a really critical thing, Elaine, because it's very few people will get a consolidation loan if the bank has concerns unless they're willing to give some, as we've said, extra assurances to the bank that they will recover their money. And that often takes one of two forms. Uh, one is a co-signer or a co-borrower. So the bank says, oh, sure, you know, we'll take a risk on you, but we'd like someone else to also be responsible there. And what a lot of people don't understand is, you know, maybe they go to a family member or a friend and they say, you know, this is never going to be triggered. You know, don't worry about it. And if it is triggered, you know, at most most it's 50-50, you know, your exposure is going to be half of what I've borrowed, and that's just not the case at all. So I meet with some people where they've done a debt consolidation loan, you know, it hasn't worked out to their benefit, they're not able to pay it off, and they really need to file a personal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, but because they've got a guarantor on that debt, you know, it might be a family member or a friend, you know, I can help them legally, they're not going to be responsible for this anymore, but they know morally their friend is now going to be on the hook, and they just feel pretty bad leaving someone in that situation that didn't contemplate it. So if the only way you can qualify for consolidation loan is by getting a co-signer or a co-borrower or by pledging an asset, which is the other way, sometimes, yeah, we'll consolidate your debt, but, you know, give us some security over your car or your house or something like those along those lines. So if, if either of those things are your only options to consolidate, I definitely recommend you explore a bunch of other options before you start thinking about pledging assets or giving a co-signer. Okay, I just want to take a moment too uh, to say, Blair, uh, if this information is overwhelming uh, to folks who are listening, make it easier on yourself. Book that appointment with Sands and Associates. Get the answers you're looking for. One eight hundred six six one thirty thirty. Um, do you want to talk about the other personal pitfalls with with consolidation, or where do you want to go with this? Because there's so much to cover, and we've yeah, only we got about so three much, minutes. So little time. I know we've all got great yeah, information. Yeah, yeah. So you know, let's just touch a little bit more on one final pit fall, which is just the cost of doing a consolidation. Then let's talk about some other options that you don't need to borrow about. So okay. just the final pitfall here is just even if you are approved, just make sure you can afford the consolidation. So sometimes people are turned down by the big banks. They end up going to 
you know, lenders that sound a lot like payday lenders, and it's a 40% interest rate. It's ridiculous charges. So just be careful that the consolidation is actually going to solve your problem, going to move you ahead. It's not going to be an unaffordable payment that, you know, is just going to fail a couple months down the road. Excellent. Okay, so key points of consolidation options that don't require to you uh, that money needs to be borrowed in order for you to pay this thing off. Yeah, there's two great options that are out there. One, I think, is far superior to the other, and I'll tell you why. But two things people can consider if they need to consolidate their debt and they don't want to borrow money to do so. One is called a credit counseling debt management plan. So if you go look online or you'll see various advertisements for credit counselors, what they're able to do, because they're essentially paid by your creditors as collection agents, is they can negotiate an interest freeze on all of your debts. Now, not any of your government debt or student loans, but any typical bank debt with a credit counselor, they'd be able to say, okay, you owe $20,000. Let's get you to pay back that full $20,000 over five years. We're going to charge you a small fee on top of it, but look what you saved in the interest. Doesn't this make a whole lot of sense? And a lot of times you say, well, yeah, this is far better than what I'm doing. I'm going to save money. I can afford to pay everything back. It's going to take five years. There's a little hit to my credit because I've, I've compromised on the interest, but this sounds pretty good. And I agree, it does sound pretty good, but there is generally a better option for people to consider, and that's called a consumer proposal, and that's what we do here at Sands & Associates. So I definitely encourage people to you know, investigate all of their options, but if you stack up a, a credit counseling debt management plan against a consumer proposal, you'll see there's some pretty significant advantages with the consumer proposal, the main one being that a consumer proposal actually reduces your debt. So where we talked about in the credit counseling plan, you've got to pay back the full $20,000. A consumer proposal because it's with a trustee who uses the law, it's a matter of what can you afford to pay back. It might be half of that debt. It might be a third of that debt. You know, typically on $20,000, maybe a 30% repayment would be $6,000. So a difference quite significantly compared to a credit counseling plan. And as soon as you've paid off that reduced balance in a consumer proposal, the debt is fully discharged. There's no one coming after you for the other half or the other 30% or whatever. So a consumer proposal reduces the debt, stops the interest, and it can include all debts, including government debts and student loans. So it's a more powerful option and definitely worthwhile anyone considering, whether they're considering consolidating, whether it's borrowing or non-borrowing, make sure a consumer proposal is one of those stones that you do overturn to see if there's something there for you. And the best thing about Sands & Associates is you can learn more about the consumer proposals, debt consolidation, as well as the other options in order to deal with your debt. Uh, Sands & Associates has a very, very friendly team. They have offices all over British Columbia. They are debt smart with heart, and it's free confidential debt consultations are available in person or remotely, so, and you can book easily. Go to the website sands-trustee.com or give them a call at one 800 661 You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.